Uh, well, you guys can take a seat. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Romans chapter 10. We're gonna be in verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Well, last weekend, uh, Meredith and I were moving some furniture around in our house, and so I grabbed a chest of drawers uh, from kind of the unfinished part of our basement, and I moved it into our playroom where our two-year-old son, Charlie, was playing, and put that down, and, and I went back into the other side of the basement, and Meredith and I grabbed, each grabbed a, a side of a desk, and we're carrying the desk into the playroom, and Meredith is, is in front going like this, you know, so she can't see behind her, and I'm in the back kind of carrying it, and all of a sudden, I hear our son, Charlie, our two-year-old son, Charlie, say, what's this? He says, what's this? And Meredith can't see because she's to her back. So I look over her shoulder and I see Charlie with this knife open next to his face. Okay, what's this? And so I say as calmly as I can, hey, Mayor, um, would you take that large open knife away from Charlie? Uh, you know, so she turned around and uh, she took the knife away from Charlie. Here's what happened, guys. That knife was in that chest of drawers and I just totally forgot. I just totally forgot it was in there. And so when I left them in there, I didn't remember to say to Charlie, hey, man, don't touch these drawers, and more specifically, don't open this knife, okay? Then there's two conclusions that you can draw from that story. Number one, never let your kids play at my house. Never do it, okay? Just don't <laughs> let them come over. Uh, it might not end well. Um, number two, failure to share important information can have serious consequences. Failure to share important information can have serious consequences. Now, thankfully, in Charlie's case, it didn't, but it could have. The reason I tell you that story is because that's Paul's entire point in Romans 10, 14 through 17, that, that a failure to share the important information of the gospel has serious consequences. You see, in verse 13, Paul writes this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the scriptures, that because of the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, that everyone, that means you, that means me, no matter who you are or what you've done or how long it's been, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, amen, hallelujah. But people can only do that if they hear about it. People can only respond to the gospel if they hear the gospel. As Martin Luther famously said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one ever heard. Here's the, the big idea for us today, guys. For people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. And for people to hear the gospel, we have to share the gospel. Okay, that's the whole point of the sermon. That's the whole point of Paul's section. For people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. And for people to hear the gospel, we have to share the gospel. So what I'm gonna do, here's my outline. I'm gonna establish that point logically through the book of Romans. And then I'm gonna try to help us apply it practically in our lives today. Okay, now to understand Romans chapter 10, it's helpful to understand the context because this verse doesn't occur in isolation. So in Romans chapter nine, Paul talks about God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, that's a kind of a theological phrase that means God is the primary mover when someone is saved. So that means that good news, God is looking for you. If, if you've come to Christ, it's because God found you, not because you found him. God is the initiator in our salvation. You, you, you know, he finds us, we don't find him. So you might conclude from that, okay, well then I don't really have responsibility in God's mission. Right, like I don't need to pray, I don't need to give, I don't need to share, I don't need to go because God's gonna draw and God's gonna save kind of whoever he wants to regardless of, of what I do. And that might be the conclusion you would draw if we only had Romans chapter nine. But Romans chapter nine flows right in to Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 10 focuses on our responsibility in the mission of God. You see, God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses us as instruments in the process. 
It's kind of a tension. God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses us as instruments in the process. And actually, the, the fact that God is sovereign is very hopeful because that means even when you do a terrible job of sharing the gospel, God can still use it to save someone. God is sovereign in salvation, but he uses us as instruments in that process. We have a role to play, every single one of us, and that's what Paul focuses on in this section. All right, let's start in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, the Greek word translated preaching there is a Greek word that means herald or share. So it includes what I'm doing right now, but it also includes what you might do over a cup of coffee, okay? Herald or share. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Paul's being honest. It's hard out there. Verse 17, summary. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me try to summarize what Paul is saying. You can't call on Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus. You can't believe in him if you've never heard of him. And you can only hear about him if someone shares the gospel with you. Paul supports his argument with a couple of quotes from the Old Testament. And then he summarizes this way. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Guys, for people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. And for people to hear the gospel, we have to share it. Because faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, And we, the church, the people of God, have been entrusted with that message. We owe it to the world to do whatever it takes to get it to them. That's what Paul is saying. We owe it to the world. We are under obligation to take this good news of the gospel to those who haven't heard. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna walk back through a couple of Paul's arguments in the book of Romans and show you that these verses are really the logical culmination of everything he's been saying. There's nowhere else Paul could end based on the first 10 chapters of theology that he's been doing in Romans. So I wanna establish it logically with three premises and then at the end, we'll apply it practically in our lives, okay? Here's the first logical premise that establishes this point. Premise number one, everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs to be saved. Here's what Paul said in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, what is the wrath of God? Well, the wrath of God is God's righteous judgment of sin. It's his righteous judgment of sin. So because God is totally just, he's a perfect judge, he hands out the exact amount of consequence or punishment, or penalty for every sin. Never more than it deserves, and never less than it deserves, but the exact amount that it deserves. What that means is that one day, perfect justice will be served. One day, justice will flow down like waters. And that's a comfort in some ways, because that means when you hear about powerful people exploiting and oppressing the weak, what you can know is that one day, God is going to call them to account. That means if if you are the victim of a grave injustice, if if you are the victim of abuse, if you have been betrayed, if you have been sinned against in some other grievous way, then it means one day, man, that sin will be called to account. The wrath of God means that one day villains will be judged and victims will be vindicated. And that is very, very good news for the world, but that's very, very bad news for us. 
Because here's what we all know, we're part victim and we're part villain, aren't we? We're part victim and we're part villain. Man, we've been sinned against and we have sinned against others. And here's what Paul says, this is really important and really uncomfortable, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, not just some of it. It's not just revealed against the people that we all agree are bad. It's not just revealed against the people that are worse than us. It's revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness because God is a perfect judge and for him to do anything else would be unjust. So what does ungodliness and unrighteousness mean? Those are kind of religious words, very vague. Well, Jesus said you could summarize all the commands in the Old Testament into two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, if you obey those two commands, you're obeying the entire law. Well, ungodliness is when we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Rather than being humble, submissive, thankful, and trusting, man, we're proud, we're rebellious, we're entitled, and we're doubtful. So that's ungodliness, when we don't love God the way that we should. Unrighteousness is when we don't love other people the way that we should. When, when rather than being loving and, and caring and considerate, we're, man, we're cutting and we're self-centered and we're manipulating and we're, we're kind of cold to the needs and the hurts of the world around us. So here's what Paul is saying in Romans 1.18. If I've ever failed to love God or my neighbor, then by definition, I am ungodly and I'm unrighteous and the wrath of God is revealed against me. I mean, I know that's a hard truth, but, but just think about it. If I put my fist in God's face, right? If I say, get off that throne, I deserve to sit on that throne. I know better than you. I'm gonna pick and choose from your word. I'm gonna live my life centered on me and my pleasures and my comforts and my desires. I don't care about you. I'm not gonna think about you. I'm gonna do what I want to do. And then at the end of my life, you better let me into heaven. Like it. If I live my life that way, if I shove my fist in God's face, then surely that deserves wrath, doesn't it? Imagine for a moment you were a supervisor and an employee treated you that way. What would you do? The wrath, your wrath would descend upon them, right? Like you'd fire them, make it a little more personal. Imagine you were dating someone who treated you that way. And, and, and you, you came to one of your friends or to one of our pastors and said, hey, I'm dating this guy. This is how he treats me. Do you know what I tell you? I break up with him. Let your wrath descend upon him, right? Like break up with him immediately. See, if anyone treated us the way that we treat God, we wouldn't think twice. We wouldn't think twice about wrath. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have treated God far worse than anyone has ever treated us. And now the wrath of God is revealed against us. So, so when we talk about the wrath of God, what are we talking about? Well, the, the book of Romans talks about it in two different ways, about there's the passive wrath of God and there's the active wrath of God. The passive wrath of, the passive wrath of God is what we experience in this life. Romans chapter one says it's when God gives us up. What that means is if I turn from God and I, and I stiff arm him and I harden my heart against his law and I say, I'm gonna do what I wanna do and I don't care about you, then God will give me up to my desires. And I'll be less and less sensitive to his presence. I'll be less and less sensitive to my conscience. And I'll become more and more enslaved in sin. You maybe have experienced this. Right, that first time you lied to your spouse, it was hard. It's not that hard anymore. Man, that first time you abused alcohol, it was hard. It's not that hard anymore. Man, you started to go to that website for a release after a hard week and now you can't stop and you're in bondage to it. That's the passive wrath of God. That's God giving us up 
to our sinful desires. But the book of Romans also talks about the active wrath of God. You see, the passive wrath of God is poured out in this life. The active wrath of God is poured out in the next life. It's what the Bible calls hell. Hell is such a somber and serious and horrifying truth that that the Bible uses a lot of different images and metaphors to describe it. Hell is described as a place of utter darkness. Have you ever been somewhere where there's absolutely no light? Have you ever been in a deep cavern where they turn the lights off and it's so dark, you, you literally can't see your hand in front of your face and, and there's, there's absolutely no light and there's, there's no way to get out because you can't see anything? That times a million, a place of utter darkness, a place of consuming depression. If you've ever experienced a mental health crisis and you just feel crushed by a lack of hopelessness, imagine that multiplied by infinity and over eternity. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place described as the lake of fire and eternal flames, a, a place utterly devoid of the goodness of God and full of the just wrath of God. The Bible uses multiple metaphors to describe it, not because it is less bad than we think, but because it is more bad than we think. The Bible literally doesn't have words. It it can't use one image to describe how horrible hell is, and so it uses multiple metaphors. I'll be honest with you, talking about hell is very difficult. It's, It's very difficult for me to talk about. It's very difficult for most of us to hear about, it's difficult to really contemplate because it's so uncomfortable, but it's a, it's a radically important truth nonetheless. The reality of the eternal active wrath of God has been used by God as a tool to stir many people awake over the years. Because when you realize that everyone doesn't go to a better place, when you realize that not everyone ends up with the Lord, some people end up in a horrible place of eternal conscious torment, All of a sudden, you start to ask questions about your own soul. And all of a sudden, you start to ask questions about the souls of those that you love. And you start to pray and you start to give like this world isn't all that there is. And the the reality of eternal truth starts to bear upon us. When you realize all that Jesus has saved you from, it makes your worship that much more sweet. Because you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for suffering and dying for me so that I could be saved. The great pastor theologian, Jonathan Edwards, once wrote this. Consider the fearful danger you are in. Hell is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And then you will have nothing to keep yourself out of those flames. And hell is the most somber, heavy, difficult doctrine in the scriptures. And it's been difficult for me as I've prepared it. And so I've been thinking about why is it so hard for us? Why is it so hard for us to receive this doctrine from the scriptures? And I don't know if this will be true for you, but this is at least three reasons that it's difficult for me. Here's the first one, because I have a small view of God's holiness. I have a small view of God's holiness. I tend to think of God like a slightly more righteous, smarter, bigger version of me. And I tend to think that God cares about righteousness and wickedness the way that I do. And oftentimes, if I'm honest, I just don't care that much. It's like I I see someone doing something that's wicked, I'm like, well, that's foolish, that's not gonna end well. But it doesn't excite in me probably the indignation that it should, 
I see sin in my own life, I see wickedness in my own life, and I think, well, I was tired, or I was hungry, or you know, it was a stressful week, right? But, but God is, is pure in every single way. He is, a, he is a consuming fire of purity. He is the ultimate standard of righteousness. And because we have a small view of God's holiness, we, we feel like hell is overdone, and yet if we had an accurate view, a biblical view of God's holiness, we'd realize that it's not overdone, but that it is absolutely necessary. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So one of the reasons that that I struggle with hell, and maybe you do, is that I just have a small view of God's holiness. Here's the second one, because I live in a culture that normalizes and celebrates sin. And you do too. At this point in our culture, really the only sin that you can commit is to call anything else sin. That's really about it. If you call anything else sin, well, that's sin, but everything else is permissible and should be celebrated. Hell seems unfair because we think sin isn't bad. But it's important to realize that the wrath of God has made sense to everyone for hundreds of years and makes sense to most people around the world. You see, when you have experienced real evil, when you have been the victim of real wickedness, the doctrine of hell makes a lot more sense to you. Miroslav Volf uh, is a theologian at Yale University who lived through the Croatian genocide. And he watched family members and friends of his man, have their throats slit. He, he saw his man, cousins and sisters be sexually assaulted. He saw entire towns with people that he loved be absolutely flattened in that genocide. And, and processing through it and talking to his countrymen, here's, here's what he concluded. He said, the only way that you will not take vengeance into your own hands and perpetuate a cycle of violence is if you believe that in the end, God will take vengeance into his. He wrote this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So I think one of the reasons that I struggle with hell is that, and I, I just live and you live and we live in a culture that is so safe and is so comfortable and is so padded from the injustices of the world. And and here's the third one. I gotta be really honest. The reason I struggle with the doctrine of hell is because it has so many implications for my life. Like I was doing yard work uh, yesterday. I was blowing leaves for like three hours. And you're like, it's December. I live in like a forest, okay? And I was sitting here just thinking about it. And I like almost had to stop. Like I was just like thinking about like people I love and people that I know that don't know Christ. And it was just like, if this is true, I can't just be blowing leaves on Saturday. Like I've gotta do something. Like, I've got to, like, call them or email them or set up coffee. Like, I've got to stop living my life to be as comfortable and as easy as possible. And I've got to start living my life so that other people can hear the good news of the gospel. You see, it's not that the doctrine of God's wrath is unreasonable or unscriptural. It's that it's unpleasant. And so we don't want to wrestle with it. Guys, the Bible is a hopeful book, but it's also a very honest book. There was a time where men and women were inherently good. That that time passed when Adam and Eve chose to sin. And now Adam's sin has been passed down to every single one of his descendants. The Bible makes this clear. History bears this out. And you've experienced it in your own life. G.K. Chesterton once said, the doctrine of sin is the only doctrine that has been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. Right? We all know that we have sinned. We all know that others have sinned against us. Because of that, we stand under the wrath of God. Paul establishes premise number one. Every single person, you, me, people in Eastern Europe, people in the Middle East, people in the preschool that your kids go to, every single person needs to be saved. 
That's the bad news. Here's the good news, premise number two. God has made a way for everyone to be saved. God has made a way for everyone to be saved. Not just some people, not people with money, not people with education, not only if you're white or if you're black, not only if you're a moral person, not only if you're a religious person, everyone can be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Into this darkness and death that is the human condition comes the hero. The hero of Christmas, the hero of the scriptures, the hero of the universe, Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God the Son at great cost to himself doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, everyone needs a savior and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse of our sin, from the curse of the law. That's what he came to do. How did he do it? Well, he did it first by living a perfect life, by obeying in all the ways that you should have obeyed and I should have obeyed, but we haven't. This is what theologians call his active righteousness. He was the perfect, perfect law keeper. He was the perfect Israelite. He was flawless in every single way. Then at the end of his life, he died on the cross as a payment for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus didn't die for his sins, he died for my sins. Jesus' cross didn't have his name on it, it had your name on it. He didn't just die for you, friends, he died instead of you. You see, on the cross, all of the active wrath of God that was stored up towards you, that was poured into your cup, was poured out on Jesus Christ. And he drank it to the very bottom, and at the end of his life, he pushed up on his nail-scarred hands, and he said, it is finished. He said, I've paid for it, I've consumed it, I've taken all of the wrath of God in your place, so that if you would repent and trust in me, the wrath of God no longer dwells upon you, hallelujah. The wrath of God is removed and instead you're made a son or a daughter of the most high God, not because of anything you've done. In fact, in spite of everything you've done, but because of the wonderful grace of God. Friends, consider the character of God. Consider the wonderful character of God. That when we spurned him and turned away from him and shook our fist in his face, he responded in patience and mercy and sacrificial grace. It's almost unfathomable how good God is towards us. It reminds me of uh, the book, The Tale of Two Cities uh, by Charles Dickens. He also wrote uh, Christmas Carol. So maybe you're watching that right now. So in the the book, The Tale of Two Cities, it's the story of really three characters. Uh, Charles Darnay, Sidney Carton, who are both vying for the love and the affection of the same woman, Lucy Minette. And so, you know, you go back and forth and both these guys are trying to woo this woman. And in the, in the end, Sydney is heartbroken because Lucy chooses to marry Charles. And Sydney slides into this drunken stupor and he, he doesn't know what he's gonna do with his life. But some, some circumstances take place where suddenly Charles is thrown in prison and is sentenced to be executed by the guillotine. And all of a sudden you think the tables have turned. Sydney is going to get what he's always wanted. Sydney is going to be there to, man, comfort Lucy, and, and he's going to be there, and she's going to come to him and fall into his arms, and you think that it's all going to work out. And then on the night before the execution, Sydney does the, the most unexpected thing. He breaks into the prison, he drugs Charles, so he's unconscious, and then he trades places with him. 
He takes off his clothes, he puts on his clothes, he goes into the prison cell, he has a, a group of men take Charles away to safety, and the next day, the blade of the guillotine falls not on Charles's neck, but on Sidney's. You see, Sidney's love for Lucy was so great that he was willing to sacrifice his life so that she could be with the man that she loved, even when it wasn't him. Jesus Christ has done even more than that for you. Jesus Christ has broken into your prison cell and he has switched places with you so that you could be reconciled to the Father. No one has ever loved you like God loves you. God has made a way for every single man, woman, and child to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which leads to premise number three. The only way people can be saved is if we share the gospel with them. The only way that people can be saved is if we share the gospel with them. In order to receive the gift of salvation, people have to hear about it. So back to Romans 10, Paul says this, how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? Uh, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, mankind's greatest problem is not sin or the wrath of God. It is ignorance of the gospel which can save from sin and deliver from wrath. It is ignorance of the gospel which can save from sin and deliver from wrath. God's plan for the salvation of the world is you and me. His, his plan, his ordained plan is to work through us as instruments so that other people can hear and respond. Look through the book of Acts. Here's what you'll find. The gospel never goes forward except through a human instrument. In fact, Acts chapter 10 is a really interesting uh, example of this. There's this guy, Cornelius. And Cornelius is about the best kind of guy you can imagine. He's like super powerful, he's moral, he's upstanding, he's, he's even like, he's a God-fearer. Like he tries to be moral and he, and he seeks after God. And so you think like, if there was ever a guy that God would send an angel with the gospel to, it's this guy. Sure enough, an angel shows up and you're like, all right, here we go. He's gonna get like, you know, the angel's gonna preach the gospel to him. Angel doesn't preach the gospel. You're like, that would've been way more efficient. What's the angel do? The angel's like, hey, I need you to go get Peter. And I'm like, this is not efficient, you know? And it's like, all right, so Cornelius is like, oh, okay. So he sends his guys to go get Peter. And Peter comes back with the guys and Peter shares the gospel. He preaches the gospel of Cornelius and Cornelius' household. And then Cornelius' household repents and believes and the scriptures say then he was forgiven of his sins and brought into the family of God. In God's wisdom and in God's sovereignty, he only uses human instruments to proclaim the gospel. Every Cornelius needs a Peter. And friends, there is a Peter in your life. There's a Peter in your life. He's in the cubicle next to you. She's on your hall in the apartment complex. It might be a family in a village in Tajikistan. But if you have been saved by Christ, then you are a Peter and there is a Cornelius that God wants you to share the gospel with. For people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. And for people to hear the gospel, we have to share the gospel. That's the logical culmination of Paul's airtight logic. You can't wiggle out of it. There's nowhere to go. Right? If we take the Bible seriously, we can't get away from it, and it has implications. It has implications for our lives. Because here's the reality, guys. There's about 5 billion people on the planet that claim no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And about half of those, it's estimated, are unreached, which means they don't, they don't really have a real shot of ever hearing the gospel. And those are the kind of people that our missionaries are engaging in places like the Middle East, in places like Eastern Europe, in places like man, Central Asia, people who really ha have never heard of Jesus. They, if you said Jesus, they'd be like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking, they think you're talking about a friend of yours. They, they just don't know. 
And, you know, the, the hardest thing is that when we hear numbers like that, they tend to become a statistic. This is gonna be the only time I've ever quoted Joseph Stalin in a sermon, okay? Probably be the last time. But he said something once, because he's a horrible person. He said, he said, the death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. Right? Just remember, every one of those five billion people, do you know who's included in that? Your prodigal child who's living in D.C. Your sister who's living an alternative lifestyle. Your best friend from high school who's agnostic now. It's like every one of those people has hopes and dreams and fears and desires and families and is made in the image of God and is precious to him. And don't turn global lostness into a statistic that we can just wipe away. In Romans 1.14, Paul said, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. He said, I'm under obligation. Here's what that means. All of those who have received the gospel have an obligation to share the gospel. We do. As Pastor David Platt once put it, Every saved person this side of hell owes the gospel to every lost person this, or every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. That's Romans 10. It's an uncomfortable, consequential, heavy passage. And so how do we, how do we respond to it? Well, there's really three things we can do. Number one, you can just deny it. And people have done that. That's the, just so you know, that's the path to liberalism. So if you wanna, if you wanna ask the question, how do people end up liberal in their faith and then eventually not having faith, how to hold denominations go sideways and end up dying because they abandoned the scriptures, it's usually over this issue. It's usually because it's just like, I can't deal with the reality of this. I don't wanna actually deal with this. And so I'm just gonna act like even though the Bible's super clear that that's not what it means and there's some other way that all these people can be saved. Rather than bearing our responsibility for the mission of God, we, we just kind of try to wiggle around it. So you could do that. You could deny it. The second one, and this is the one that's probably more tempting for me, if I'm very honest with you, I wouldn't do the first one. The second one that's really tempting for me is just to functionally ignore it, right? It's like, give it lip service. Yes, it's in the Bible, affirm it on a document, but not actually live that way, right? Like not actually think about it, not let it impact me, push it out of my mind, and just be like, I don't have time to think about this right now. That's, that's the second. And I'd say that's the temptation for a church like ours. And then there's the third way, which is the scriptural way, and that is to embrace it, is to say, here I am, Lord, send me. God, I, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and by God's grace, I'm going to. Man, that's the kind of culture that we wanna have at our church. That's why we do things like the Hold the Rope offering. That's why we send out missionaries. So let me, let me close with three practical steps that you right now can respond to the reality of Romans chapter 10, and you can play a part in the mission of God, okay? Three really practical steps. Any of us can do this. Here's letter A, pray, pray. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said this in verse two, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's what Jesus is saying. The harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people that need to hear and respond to the gospel, but there's not enough people sharing. So Jesus said, we don't have a harvest problem. We have a labor problem. And so what is Jesus' answer? Well, he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for his harvest. Here's the thing. Man, prayer is what motivates and stirs people to live as missionaries in the world. I mean, look at the book of Acts. Oftentimes what precedes power in the book of Acts is prayer. Acts chapter two, before Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved, what are they doing? They're praying together for 10 days. You fast forward in, in Acts chapter um, uh, 13, when they're about to send out Paul and Barnabas to uh, the nations as missionaries, what are they doing? They're worshiping and they're praying. Just go through the book of Acts, do a word study, prayer preceding power. It, it happens all the time. Samuel Zwemer is a leading missiologist and he wrote this. 
The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. It is the key to the whole missionary problem. Missional churches are praying churches. That's simply, man, what they are. So here's an easy way to start. You ready? Grab your phone. You got your phone? You can get it out right now. I'll give you permission to get your phone out right now. Some of you already have it, okay? I leave my phone down on stage so no one calls me in the middle of a sermon. All right, I'd hold it up. All right, go to your reminders or to your calendar. Set a reminder for 10.02 every day and just put pray for laborers and set it for a daily reminder. Every day at 10.02, I hope your phone buzzes and you at least have to dismiss it, okay? You at least have to dismiss it if you're not gonna pray. But it's just gonna give you a reminder. Every single day, you can just pray and say, God, would you raise me up, me up as a laborer? Would you raise up more laborers in our church? Would you raise up, man, more laborers for the nations? 10.02, man, we can be praying. I think God could probably do an enormous amount if every single, all 500 of us that are part of this church would pray every single day for God to raise up laborers. So that's a simple way that you can be involved in the mission of God today. It's not even, it's 10.15. We missed it by 13 minutes, okay? You can, you can pray later today. All right, pray. Here's letter B, go, go. In Luke chapter 10, right after Jesus finishes saying, pray earnestly for more laborers, you know what he does? He sends the disciples out to share the gospel. You see, sometimes you are the answer to your own prayer, right? You're like, raise up laborers, and God's like, got it, you, tag, you're it. That's what Jesus did. Um, you may not know where God's gonna send you in the future, but friends, you know exactly who God has sent you to right now. Man, you've been called and you've been empowered to share the good news where you live and where you learn and where you work and where you play, right? With your neighbors, if you've got kids with the kids that live in your house, where you learn, with your coworkers, and or with your classmates, where you work, with your coworkers, where you play, just, you know, you play adult league soccer or you play pickleball or whatever you do, like the people that, man, you engage with, those are the people that God has given you to reach. So what should I share with them, Josh? Like, if, okay, if I'm gonna do this, well, you can, I'll give you four ideas. Number one, you can just share the gospel. That'd be great. Like, we've got resources we'd love to teach you, a simple way to just sit down over a meal, sit down over coffee, share the good news of the gospel. You could share your testimony. That's like, hey, this is what God has done and is doing in my life. Especially if you've been recently baptized or you've recently really grown, man, that's a great thing to share. Like, man, can I tell you something that God's doing in my life? Man, that's a very, it's a very winsome, compelling way to share. So share the gospel, share your testimony. Uh, share an invitation. Right, that's a super easy step. That's why we gave you Christmas Eve inviter cards. You got two more on your seat. You can grab those and you can invite somebody this week to our Christmas Eve services. And here's what I can promise you. If they come to the Christmas Eve service, they're gonna hear the gospel. Okay, so that's like anybody can do that. Take a personal risk and invite somebody. It's worth being a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. God might use it to save your eternal soul. Okay, is that worth it? Yes, it's worth it. All right, grab those Christmas Eve inviter cards. Here's the fourth thing you could share. You can just share another cup of coffee. You could just say like, I'm committed to this relationship over time, I'm gonna build into this relationship so I have the ability to share with them. Whoever it's with and however you share, you and I are called to go so that those who don't know Christ can hear about him. So who do you need to share with? And let me just be really honest, sharing with them is going to require you crossing a boundary. It always does. It may be just the invisible boundary that says socially we don't talk about religion. It may be that invisible boundary. It might be a generational boundary. They might be older or younger than you. It might be an ethnic boundary. They might be a different ethnicity. It might be an economic boundary. It might be like Mark and Yvette, you're crossing political and geographic boundaries, but sharing the gospel always requires crossing boundaries. We're here today because someone crossed the boundary to share the gospel with us. And now it's our privilege and responsibility to do the same for others. And when we do, we mirror the work of our Savior of Jesus Christ, who crossed the ultimate boundary between heaven and earth to save us from our sin. And it's the remarkable boundary-crossing grace of Jesus Christ 
that has motivated the church to go and to share the gospel for 2,000 years. It's the way that the gospel made it from Jerusalem to Charlottesville in 2023. Consider this. In 37 AD, roughly, Jesus gave the Great Commission. And he said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They didn't even know that North America existed at that point. AD 37. AD 42, Mark goes to Egypt. AD 49, Paul heads to Turkey and in 51 AD to Greece. AD 52, the apostle Thomas goes to India. By AD 54, Paul is on his third missionary journey reporting great response among the Gentiles. By the end of the first century, there were three great church planting centers in the church planting in the Gentile world, Antioch, Rome, and Alexandria. And they planted churches all over the Roman Empire to the fact that by the end of the third century, it's estimated that half of the Roman Empire had become Christians. In 432 AD, a guy named Patrick responded to a dream and went to Ireland to preach the gospel. And now we celebrate by dressing in green, pinching each other and drinking too much. That's what we do. In AD 596, a church planter named Augustine went to Canterbury, England, planted a church and baptized 10,000 people in two years. That's where the Church of England got started. By 1200 AD, the Bible had been translated into 22 different languages so that nomadic tribes and barbarian tribes could hear the gospel in their own tongue. In 1526, William Tyndale translated the New Testament into everyday English for the very first time so that everyday people could hear the good news of the gospel for themselves, and he died for his efforts. In 1587, two Native Americans professed faith and were baptized on Roanoke Island, the Lost Colony, the first recorded baptisms in North America. In 1740, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, took a preaching tour through the state of North Carolina, the colony of North Carolina at that time, with great response. Crowds of up to 35,000 came out to hear him proclaim the gospel. That same year, a man named Shubel Stearns heard about this great work of God. And so he packed up his family and he moved down to North Carolina and he planted a church. It's called Sandy Creek Baptist Church. And that church, in its first two years, planted 42 other churches across. North Carolina. In 1845, out of that movement was planted First Baptist Church of Durham. In 1921, First Baptist Church of Durham planted Grace Baptist Church of Durham. In 1961, Grace Baptist Church of Durham planted Homestead Heights Baptist Church of Durham. In 2002, Homestead Heights Baptist Church called J.D. Greer to be their new pastor and relaunched as the Summit Church. In 2012, Meredith and I heard about the Summit's vision for planting churches and moved down to Raleigh-Durham to be a part of it. In 2018, 37 adults and 12 kids were sent by the Summit Church to Charlottesville to plant Center Church. And in 2013, as I live and breathe and stand, I am preaching a message to our church saying, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Guys, we are a part of a global movement of grace and God is saying, tag, you're it. It's your turn. Don't turn your head. Don't close your eyes. Don't harden your heart. Pray and go. And finally, we give. Guys, generosity fuels the mission of God. It always has. It costs money to go on a short-term mission trip. It costs money to plant a church in Newport News. It costs money to participate in a residency program. It costs money to move overseas long-term to share the gospel. One way that we can all participate in God's global mission is by giving financially, so that others can go. Man, we wanna give you an opportunity to do that today through our Hold the Rope offering. So I'm gonna invite our band out onto the stage. I wanna invite you to grab that card that's on your seat. We've been talking about this for a month and I hope that you've had a chance to pray 
And if you're married, to talk to your spouse about how God is leading you to participate. But if not, I get it. It's a crazy season of the year. So here's what we wanna do. We're gonna give you a few minutes now, man, to pray. And ask the Lord, Lord, how would you have us, how would you have our family participate financially in this offering? On the back, you can put your name, you can put the amount. There's a bunch of different ways that you can give. But here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you about two minutes. Our band's gonna play the first couple verses of our next song. Pray, contemplate, let what we've just heard from the scriptures settle in. And then I'm gonna come back out to lead us corporately in, a, in, a, in an act of commitment to the mission of God. So you take time, you pray, you talk with your spouse, and I'll be back out in a minute.